Hey, you all. Welcome back to the Definitely Not Simple Life podcast. Here are your hosts, Angela at Axe and Root Homestead, Mandy at Wild Oak Farms, and Renee at Mountain Woods Farm. Enjoy. Hey, you all. Welcome back to the next episode of the Definitely Not Simple Life podcast. This is Renee, and I'm here with three very special ladies who I feel like my sisters. Mandy's here, of course. Angela's here. And then our friend Kay. And you all probably know her from Instagram, the modern day settler. And we had her on this podcast not so long ago where we talked all things pig. And honestly, we probably could have recorded that podcast for about three days because Kay is like such a wealth of information. She's like the pig queen. So we decided to have her back and we're really going to focus on more of like the breeding and farrowing so, so should we jump right into this episode yeah but first a quick comment renee yes i didn't realize when you said settler you said it was such a lovely english accent settler <laughs> settler yes <laughs> is that very formal i think it's because i really love david beckham oh <laughs> yeah that's fine <laughs> it's all good He's just trying, trying to draw in David. <laughs> I'm just trying. I feel like when he listens mm-hmm. to this podcast, which he will, he obviously, obviously, he's going to say, "Oh my gosh, is she English?" Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, you would just compliment his world so well with your I Highland would. cattle. I well, would. I'm, I'm sure that Posh Spice wants to hear all about breeding pigs too. So, <laughs> I mean, maybe she does. Maybe she doesn't. And David wish she did. We don't know. It's true. I feel like if he met me, mm-hmm. he it would be over between him and Posh. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. You would be Farm Spice. I would be Farm Spice. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kate. So we didn't put up a question box this time because last time we had you on, we got so many amazing questions and so many were surrounding breeding. And I know many people want to know natural breeding versus like AI, why you AI at your farm. Maybe we can talk about what AI is for people who don't know, uh, as opposed to having, you know, like a a stud there, a boar there to go ahead and breed your ladies. So if you just want to like elaborate a little bit on the different ways to breed and why you have decided to go with artificial insemination, which is AI. Yeah. So natural is of course, Live, co- aka live cover. So you would have a boar, uh, male pig intact around for breeding. This is certainly an option that a lot of people take advantage of. Um, but the thing is, is AI, um, like you said, artificial insemination, it's such an easy thing to do in pigs compared to other species like for instance, cattle. Uh, It's much more involved, much more specialized equipment. Um, I believe takes more skill. So back to the natural though, um, there's definitely some pros to it. It's convenient. You don't have to track um, the sow's heat cycle. You literally just stick the mail in with her, you know, let them do the deed uh, and away they go and you don't have to worry about anything. There's no part you know, no work involved on your part as far as that goes. However, and this is where, in, in my opinion, the cons for our for our um, homestead and our purposes, the cons way outweigh 
uh, the pro of convenience. It's another animal to feed. It's another animal to house. The boar is going to have to be separated when they're not breeding to control the breeding. Um, not to mention the fact that there are some very nice docile boars out there, but they can be extremely dangerous. Uh, and ultimately for us, it's, there's a lack of genetic diversity. So you have your boar, you breed them. Well, what if you want to keep a female um, out of that litter? Unless you're wanting to experiment with line breeding, you have to get a new boar. Then it means you have to handle the old boar. So there's just a lot involved. And it's just another animal that thanks to AI, it, it eliminates it you know, completely from your setup. So with AI, uh, there's no boar to care for. You have unlimited genetic diversity. Uh, there's multiple companies out there that sell boar semen. So you can just quite literally never use the same boar twice, which allows you to, which is something that I'm really trying to do is to improve your breeding stock. So if you want to select for say, well, for instance, one of my sows has She's very low to the ground and has short legs. I wanted to get some more height out of her. So I bred her to a nice tall boar and the resulting guilt that I retained from that litter, she's the tallest that I have. Um, so there's a lot of, a lot of advantages to that because you can drastically improve your breeding stock within even a single generation just by choosing the correct boar. And it's kind of like the world's your oyster. Like I literally have semen catalogs sitting on my desk <laughs> right now. <laughs> um, and of course, um, there is there's a, an argument out there that you do get larger litter sizes with AI versus a boar um, because, of course, genetics companies they're going to have proven semen motility, um, whereas with the boar, you know, maybe maybe his doesn't have the strongest swimmers. There's no way of really knowing that unless you test it. So there's a lot of advantages to it. But the downside is you have to pay attention. You have to track their heat cycle because you don't have a board doing the job for you. Um, so there's a little bit more work involved on your part. And of course, you're paying for semen, um, which again, you're not paying to house a board. So in my mind, it's kind of a wash as far as the financial aspect goes. Um, I assume it varies in cost based on where you're sourcing semen from, but what does that roughly look like cost-wise for somebody that's getting into this? Yeah, so there are going to be, I mean, there's a lot of different prices out there, to be completely honest. So especially if you're getting into, and I, for all I know, there are people that are going to be listening that are into showing like for 4-H show pig semen can be quite expensive. Um, which I mean, you should look at the boars. They look like bodybuilders. Um, but they can be as much as $150 for a single dose of semen. Um, whereas, I, for instance, just bred all three of my girls with some um, red wattle semen, and it's normally $30 a dose, but because I bought so many doses, because I was breeding multiple sows, they gave me a discount, and I got it for $20 a dose. 
Um, but they're always running specials. Semen companies are always, they're always running specials, um, weekly specials, or even like overruns. If they have some semen maybe left over from like the prior collection day, they'll sell it on a discount. So I have never paid full price ever. And I've done like 30 some breedings. <laughs> hmm, that's interesting. So how many breedings does it normally take? Like, do you do breed, like in dogs, for example, we usually don't breed like back to back, like we'll breed, skip a day and breed. Is it the same with pigs or do you breed like back to back days? How many, you know, AIs are you getting in, you know, for these ladies? How does that work for pigs? Because obviously I'm just like way more (laughs) educated on reproduction for dogs. And I know nothing about dogs. So, <laughs> so estrus and sows is, and this is kind of like my disclaimer, like anything else, highly variable. Whether it, variation in the, how quickly they return to estrus, how long and strong their standing heat cycle is. Um, very, it's very variable depending on, of course, the individual um, which I, I personally select for strong heat cycles. That's a desirable quality that I select for in my breeding stock. Um, but also weather. Weather has a huge effect on it too. Um, they tend to cycle quicker and stronger in colder temperatures than when it's warmer. Um, so anyway, like most other animals, there's a range. They come into heat every 17, maybe 18 to 24 days with 21 days being the average. So they're going to be in that early pro estrus where they're having their agitation, their swelling, their vulva swelling, discharge. You'll see them like mounting each other and just all around feisty and you're like running away from them and hopping fences. That's like the passage of heat. And then they come into true estrus, which is also called standing heat. Standing heat, and I don't, I don't know anything about dogs as far as this goes, but in sows, standing heat is when they are quite literally standing um, and would accept a boar to mount them. So this period, and you breed. So a sow, and I'm using big air quotes here, is generally going to stand longer than a gilt would. And just a little refresher in case anybody didn't listen to the prior podcast, a sow is going to be, um, that that's referring to a female that has had a litter of piglets, whereas a gilt is a female that has not had a litter of piglets yet. So your sows are going to stand longer than your gilts in a typical heat cycle and that's where breeding occurs. And your semen is viable for roughly 12 hours in the body, which I know, and I just found this out from Mandy, that in dogs, it can be there for like four to five days. Is that true? Yeah, and chickens could be like three weeks. That's insane. Yeah, that's <laughs> insane. Um, so there are different protocols that some people follow with breeding in sows, and it largely is dependent on, I think, the more experience you get, you can extend and the better you are at detecting and knowing their heat cycle, you can extend the um, interval longer. But the general rule of thumb is that you breed them every 12 hours until they no longer stand. 
Okay. So it is, wow. So it could be, be twice a day. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Okay. Um, and the reason why I say big old air quotes <laughs> is because last fall, for instance, I bred my guilt who stood for a whopping 60 hours. I bred her five times. Whereas her sister, who was a sow, who had already had a litter, she only stood for two breedings. So it's very variable. That's interesting. Gosh. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And it, it varies cycle to cycle, um, you know, even within the same sow. It, it's really incredible. Um, Big Marie, my, my first sow, she one time only stood for one breeding. It was such a short, weird heat cycle. She only stood for one breeding, but it took because it really only takes one time. <laughs> um, that's, that's all you need is the right, the right timing. But the thing is, is because they can stand for such an extended period of time and you don't know when they're going to stop. An ovulation begins roughly two thirds of the way through their standing heat, and they can continue to ovulate even after standing heat ends. You want to make sure that you get them, get that semen in towards the end of their cycle when they're when they're ovulating or when they're just starting to ovulate. That's that's really all it is. It's and so breeding every twelve hours you're basically just guaranteeing that you hit that proper timing. Gosh. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, it's so interesting. Um, I studied a little bit of this after college, but not to this degree. It was more of a commercial operation. So like, Kate, you are so, you have to be so in tune with your animals in order to successfully do this. I mean, we see it just on social media, how, how, I'm going to call you an expert, just how much of an expert you've become. So when somebody was first starting out or, or whatever, what, what do you need in order to accomplish this? Like what equipment does somebody need? It's, it's really not a lot. And I, I feel like it sounds more complicated than it is, but, or I'm, I'm making it seem like it's way more labor intensive than it is, but it's not. Um, cause you're not out there checking them every two hours, like to see if they're standing. Actually, you don't, you don't want to do that at all. You want to check them like twice a day. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really not difficult, um, to just, it, and you can check them around feeding time or whatever, you know, like it, it, it doesn't have to be like, it's, it's not actually as hard as it may sound. Um, but from an equipment standpoint, super minimal. Um, you need non-spermicidal lube. You need a catheter, which that you can get all of these things from, um, the genetics company that you order from. That's, that's the great thing. But when you call and you order your semen, they're like, do you need any rods and, and lube? Like you can buy it all from them. Uh, so you just need your catheter, which there are different styles, depending on preference, your non-spermicidal lube, your semen, and then I would always recommend if somebody does not have a bore or a teaser bore, which the whole point for me of AI is so that I don't have to have um, the bore around, uh, they do make a pheromone spray called uh, Hogmate. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's, you, you just spray it 
um, and it has the pheromones of a boar, and it really helps them have a stronger, stronger stance for breeding. You're spraying it on yourself? No, um, you spray it near their face. Like I just oh. give them like a little, kind of like a little spritz in front of their face so that they can smell it. Oh, set in the mood. I was I was picturing you <laughs> spraying it like like. Uh, in, in veterinary medicine, we have pheromones that we can spray on our scrubs and things that help calm cats down or spray on blankets. I was actually picturing you spraying this like on your boots and going out there and. Oh my gosh. I would be running for the hills probably. (laughs) (laughs) They'd be coming at me like a heat seeking missile. (laughs) That's hilarious. Um, okay. So, I mean, yeah, it's not a lot of equipment and then you just need your skills, your eyes. Um, Gosh. Exactly. It's nothing like cattle. Uh, you know, when the vet came out and bred my dairy cow, I was obviously felt like he had to like push me away because I'm like, what are you doing? What where are you where are you putting it? Because <laughs> um, you need all that specialized uh, equipment and the temperature has to be like just so exactly perfect and you have to, you know, work the rod through the rectum to get it directly deposited through the cervix into the horns. And it's not <laughs> like that with sows. It's it's very different um, because they are the ones that are actually – and, of course, rod placement is important, but you are not necessarily putting it into the, – the semen into the right spot like you are with cattle. Um, with sows, they actually draw it in. So you're doing all of this and it's maybe a couple of dates or what have you. And then I don't know if you briefly want to touch on or if we did touch on care after that, but then how long, uh, what's, what's their gestation length? Whatever role they play, our animals are an important part of our lives. And as much as we count on them, they count on us all the more to protect them to help them grow and thrive, treating them as well as they treat us. That's why we're here to make their lives the best they can be. Manapro, nurturing life. Visit manapro.com and follow us at Manapro Homestead. The old saying is three months, three weeks, three days, which is a 114-day gestation. Um, That's the average, of course. There's a range. Uh, They can go one... 12 even, which I've, I've never had one go early. Um, and as much as 120 and there are certain breeds, like for instance, Berkshires, uh, they're notorious for going over, uh, well over the 114 day mark. Uh, they typically have a longer gestation, but, um, yeah, so about 114 days. So Kate, for people who are getting into this and maybe have no experience whatsoever, Mm -hmm. how do you know if the insemination took? So once you breed, um, you do your doses, you know, whatever, then you would want to look for them to return to heat, you know, 18 to 24 days later. Uh, so if they don't come back into heat, that of course is going to be a very good sign, um, that they are pregnant. And I personally 
have a preg tone, which is a multi-species um, ultrasonic ultrasound. So it doesn't give you a photo image. It uses sound waves uh, to give you an audible detection um, of pregnancy. Basically, it detects amniotic fluid assuming that you're pointing it at the uter, you know, at, at the right spot. Cause if mm -hmm. you point it accidentally towards the bladder, it's going to say that they're pregnant when it's detecting urine, not <laughs> amniotic fluid. Um, so for me personally, I look for return to estrus. If I don't see it, then I do the ultrasound to confirm pregnancy. Um, you could also do if you want, that come out and do one but i can't imagine how expensive that would be and i don't think it would be really worth it um so a lot of people just do the wait and see method to be completely honest they say oh she hasn't returned to heat and there's no no more uh returns to estrus after breeding well then she's pregnant and it can be a little nerve-wracking because they don't really show uh that they're pregnant until towards the very end so you got to hope that you're you're doing a good job of really detecting that they are not coming back into heat because otherwise uh, you won't find out there till close to the end. So then you said you had three three months, three weeks, three days. Yep. Before farrowing, what does getting prepared for the actual event look like for you? So for me, it's all about proper uh, nutrition throughout gestation. There are a lot of things that can go wrong with farrowing. Um, and for me, it's, it's always something that I'm going to somewhat have PTSD from, <laughs> from my first farrowing, which was absolutely terrible. Um, and so I have found, though, that Number one, by raising and having proper development for the guilt up until the time she is bred has a huge effect on just their general health, which is going to affect the outcome of the farrowing. But also, you just mainly want to make sure that sow's or guilt's nutritional needs are being met throughout her gestation. You don't, you want her to be in good body condition, but you do not want her to get overweight. Um, I feel like a lot of people accidentally or unknowingly overfeed, which is just going to create nothing but problems as far as the farrowing itself. So proper uh, nutrition is critical. And then I would say getting your, your farrowing space ready. Um, you know, depending on your philosophy, there are some people that are 100% all natural, you know, give her a a round bale of hay and, and let her build her nest and, and let her have her piglets and, and do it all herself and without intervention. And then of course you have the opposite end of the spectrum, which is farrowing crates. Um, I find myself somewhere in between. Um, I have seen <laughs> and am very much aware of the horrible things that can happen and when you have an animal that is that massive and it has that many little piglets that are so fragile and fumbly and bumbly the first couple of days of life, like it is nerve wracking. Um, 
So I try to set my sow up for success by letting her be a mother on her own and like natural uh, as far as that goes. I don't use farrowing crates, but for instance, I have bumpers in a farrowing area, which is essentially a board that it's a bumper. Uh, Think about like bowling. Um, You know, when you throw the ball down the lane, you have those bumpers on the side that keep it from going in the gutter. So I have those in my farrowing area. The reason I have those is because they love to lay against walls. And I've seen them like go to lay down and they can be as careful as can be. um, Because I do have very maternal and very good sows. But those piglets are just completely unaware of her movements those first few days. And without it, they would just get absolutely crushed. And that's the biggest loss is the first three days after your litter is born is they get lost to crushing. I know people that have lost entire litters because of it. Um, cause they don't move or the sow is just a bad mom and she rolls over and crushes them all. Like it's so nerve wracking. <laughs> um, so for me, I use the, the bumpers just to give her the piglets a spot to get away from her and get, you know, if she's coming down, they have a space to go where they won't get hurt. Uh, and then they have a creep space, which is basically against a wall that's like boarded off that they can slip under and they can go lay under there and cuddle together as opposed to cuddling up against her um, where they could, again, potentially get crushed. Fun dog fact. So we build whelping boxes for our dogs when they're going to go ahead and whelp, right? It's just like farrowing is for pigs, whelping is for dogs. Yep. We actually build pig rails yeah. in our whelping boxes because we have the same concern, especially with the bigger breeds like the Newfoundlands, right? And, you know, our, our Great Pyrenees, our livestock dogs, because they'll do the same thing. They'll just unknowingly crush puppies. Mm-hmm. And so we that term pig rail really came from pig farming. We saw that that was working for all y'all. And we were like, hey, we need to do something too to keep these you know, bitches from crushing these puppies. So yeah, we build whelping boxes with pig rails. They work fantastic. I have seen firsthand, and and I'm sure Renee, you've you've seen it too. Yes, having a good sow or a you know great um, dog is going to really help minimize these accidents, but it's not necessarily her. <laughs> uh, when those piglets are those first three days old. They are just completely unaware of her movements. Um, and if she, she'll go to lay down and it'll take her forever as she just very gently eases herself down and they still don't get out of the way. Like I've, I've seen, I have seen a bumper, um, or a pig rail, like save lives. It's unbelievable. I have never regretted doing it. Um, and again, it, it's, I'm not confining her to a crate. That's again, people do that and I don't, but you know, to each their own. But for me, it's a happy medium because if you want to go the completely hundred percent natural route, like that's fine. It's possible. Pigs, if you have a good sow and she's got the instinct, um, to be a good mom, you know, they can do it. And the reason why they have such big litters is because there's going to be, statistically, there's going to be losses. However, 
when I do this as a, a part of a way for like our homestead's finances, like you have to be pretty comfortable knowing that you're going to go out there and you're going to potentially find an entire litter crush. Like for me, it's just not worth it to be in the name of a hundred percent natural, but that's just me. There are people that do it. Well, and I know two things. I know you will probably show some of this when this episode airs and I know you built everything and did a phenomenal job, but also I want to circle back and we can move on after that. But how you said that your first farrowing was terrible and just commend you for continuing because I know it could be just devastating. And, um, I mean, you've learned and taught Mm -hmm. all of us and so many people so much. Um, so thank you. Yeah. Yeah. You're welcome. And yes, it, it was absolutely terrible. And it, you know, it's one of those things that it was just, I mean, the whole big, all of big Marie's fairways, to be honest, they were rough. Um, the first one was awful because of the insanely high stillborn rate, uh, and the dystocia that she had during farrowing, likely due to the fact that she was overweight. Um, and then the second one, that was when she at one point got up and it's the only farrowing I've ever missed. Uh, cause she did it in between checks and she had four piglets in between two studs, which we did not have a bumper on that wall. So the piglets were born piled up and they were pinned in, in between the two studs and they had nowhere to go. So if there would have been a bumper there, could have been different. <laughs> so that was one that I had, I was like, after that, you know, I was like, no way I could not deal, deal with a hundred percent. Um, no, assistance. I call it assistance, but it's just very minor infrastructure, um, to help her basically set her up for success. So yeah, exactly. Tough, I was going to say the same thing. You just tough lessons learned. <laughs> yeah. You le- you learn and you improve and that's game. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So all of this time leading up to the big event, can you Kate, when you are looking visually at your sows or your gilts uh, before farrowing, can you kind of run through when you maybe start to check them more frequently and then what body physical changes or behavior um, that you are paying attention to that would tell you that they're, they're close to farrowing? Yes. Um, so roughly two weeks or less again, just like any other animal, this highly variable animal to animal. Um, and another little disclaimer is that uh, once you start to get into a sow that has had several parodies, meaning litters, um, some of these changes might not be as obvious. Um, for instance, a sow that's had multiple litters her vulva doesn't quite shrink back the way it used to. So it's just you're not going to get them as extreme of a, a visual difference. Um, and same with like her udder and stuff like that. So roughly two weeks or less prior to the day that she farrows, um, they're going to get some swelling. Uh, their vulva is going to begin to swell. 
Um, you'll even see, especially in gilts, you'll start to see that their udder is starting to develop a little bit. Like their teats might, um, at the base, they start to get like a little bit coned up. I like, I like to say they just get to be like a little bit thicker. Um, and then really it's when you start to get into the couple of days before farrowing that they, their body just it's like every time you go outside, their body looks different. It's, it's amazing how fast it happens. Um, so typically one to two days prior to labor, um, their mammaries will start to become um, urged. They may or may not begin to secrete like a, a clear liquid. Um, and then once you get into like the 12 hours to a day prior to labor, for me, the big indicator is always going to be uh, nesting. So once I see a nesting behavior, uh, to me, that means like I'm in full stalker mom mode from that point on. Um, because they can nest and, and they can nest and then they can have their piglets two hours later, or it can be 12 hours or 24 hours later. Um, it is variable, but they're going to nest. They're going to go out and collect whatever they can collect and, and build a nice spot to have their babies. At that point, um, they should be dripping with milk or shortly after, um, you'll see that they're just you can easily express milk or they'll be dripping with it even. And then they, after that happens and their, their restlessness and their nesting behavior dies down, they settle down. And then that's really when you're like, okay, something's going to happen. Um, they start to get increased respiration. Um, they tend to relax on their side and then it's just kind of like a cascading effect you know, from there, as far as pre-labor goes, um, into the actual, um, pushing. But for me, uh, nesting is the big kind of indicator. I really need to be watching them closely. So when they are building their nest and they obviously know farrowing is coming and you're in tune that farrowing is coming, what does an ideal farrowing look like? So there's going to be um, some variation in the timing of the piglets. And I would say that that's, that's probably the biggest, <laughs> the biggest stressor. Um, so once they lay down uh, and you'll see that they have, like I said, the increased respiration um, and then once they start shivering, uh, they quite literally convulse and shiver, uh, like the entire time. So once I see that shivering and, and once I see that they passed, um, like their, uh, cervical discharge, uh, and they are having contractions, I want to see a piglet fairly quickly. When I say fairly quickly, um, when they're, they're having contractions and once they actually start pushing, um, I would like to see a piglet within a half hour to an hour. Uh, if you don't, it could indicate that there may be a stuffed piglet again, highly variable. Um, someone may have a 
a farrowing that happened where they pushed for two hours before they had to piglet. Again, you just don't know what's going to happen. But generally speaking, they're going to have piglets every 15 to 30 minutes. That's the big air quote typical. It can be as much as an hour. It can be as short as five minutes. Um, I have seen all of it and everything in between. Um, but a typical farrowing, you're going to have a piglet every 15 to 30 ish minutes. Um, in an ideal world, she's going to lay down on one side and have the entire litter because pigs, sows do have two, two uterine horns. So sometimes they will get up and switch sides partway through. Um, I've seen them do it and I've seen them lay down and give birth to an entire litter without moving. So it really just depends on the particular, the particular farrowing. Um, and then they're going to pass placenta. So again, they have two horns, two placentas. Sometimes they'll pass one partway through and then they'll pass the second one at the end. Sometimes it just comes out in one big mass at the end. Um, it's variable, but yeah, in an ideal scenario, you would just see a piglet come, you know, every 15 to 30 minutes, uh, without any weird presentations or without any difficulties on her part, um, as far as stuffed piglets go. And she would pass her placenta at the end and, uh, it would be hunky dory and there would never be a problem in the world. <laughs> I do have a follow-up question because obviously um, canines also have two uterine horns. And a lot of times what we'll see is, um, so they'll deliver, let's say, every puppy in the right horn, right? Because mm-hmm. we know that they will empty an entire horn. They don't go like right horn, left horn, right horn, left horn. Like they don't alternate. Like one entire horn will go ahead and deliver. And then we see what we call like a uterine pause sometimes where it could be like an hour, two hours where the bitch is just kind of like relaxed and then we call it like a nice pause and then they'll go ahead and they'll deliver all the puppies on the left horn. Do you ever see a pause when it comes to farrowing or pigs are pretty, they sound like they're much more efficient than our dogs. You know, they just like either have them all or like roll over for the next horn. But do you ever see a pause in between where you're like, oh, I know one horn is emptied and now here comes the other one. I have seen it. Yes. Um, so I've seen both scenarios. I I've had, and that's a, that's the thing is I, it's so hard to necessarily give normals and give say rules and ranges because there are so many situations that arise that are way outside the normal, but it still turns out okay. You know what I mean? I mean these are animals, right? Um. So a fairwing can last anywhere from two hours to eight hours. So yeah, I, I have seen a pause. Um, none this previous fairwing. This previous fairwing was crazy. It was rapid fire. Like I needed a catcher's mitt. Both of my sows had their entire litters under two hours. Um, and like the one, my she was a gilt. This is her first litter. She had twelve. 12 piglets in under two hours. It was unbelievable. Um, And she had them all on one side. Didn't get up and switch sides. 
because uh, I don't know about dogs, but uh, sows can deliver and clean out both horns without getting up. I don't know if it's true for dogs. Some of them will shift. Some of them won't. It really just depends. And just like you said, you can't really say like, this is what the ideal situation is going to be. Cause obviously always our ideal situation is, you know, a nice whelping or a nice farrowing where mom is doing great and all the pigless survive. There's no troubles, right? right. Yes. That's ideal. <laughs> Um, but yes, they, I have seen a pause. Um, I don't recall exactly how long it was, but I want to say it was probably in the 45 minutes to an hour, roughly time frame, something like that. Right. So it'd be most important to just really know your animals, like be in tune with your animals, because what could be a great farrowing for somebody might be look completely different for somebody else. So it's really just important just to really look for signs of distress. Or if you have a question you're not sure about, don't be afraid to ask like your really cool farm friends on Instagram that have pigs or reach out to your veterinarian, right? Because that's why they're there, you know, and like you said, every farrowing could just look a little bit different, even for the same sow year after year. Absolutely. I mean, again, mine had them so fast this year, but I have had farrowings where it was consistently 20 to 30 minutes in between piglets. Um, and like you, you nailed it right on the head, acknowledging signs of distress. So is anything happening as far as piglets? Like, is she having piglets? No. Okay. Well, has she been pushing for 20 to 30 minutes straight and nothing is happening? Or is she just hanging out and taking a little bit of a break? Um, just because there's a pause or a period of time in between piglets does not mean that something is wrong. You know, if she is, though, pushing and straining for 30 minutes and has nothing to show for it, then yeah, maybe it means that something's wrong. Maybe there's a piglet in there that's stuck or it's it has a bad presentation. Um, bloodshot eyes is something to look for too. Again, showing that she's straining. Because um, the one thing that you do not want to happen is for her to get completely exhausted, for instance, trying to pass a stuck piglet that she cannot pass and then she can't deliver the rest of her litter um, because of it. You know, she exhausts herself on, on a piglet. So highly variable. Um, and it's all about, like you said, knowing, knowing her normal and being able to acknowledge those signs of distress and intervening if necessary. Well, Kate, I want to thank you very much for coming on and answering our, our questions all about farrowing today because after you were on our previous uh, pig episode, our discussion that we had with Kate, if you haven't tuned in yet, um, we received so many questions about when is the farrowing going to, to air, you know? So I really want to thank you for coming on, sharing even more knowledge and insight with us in addition to what you already shared last time around. And if you haven't tuned into that episode, we encourage you to do so. And you can uh, find Kate on Instagram, as Renee says, at the modern day settler. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we do encourage you to check her out, not only to see 
her uh, beautiful pigs, but also her livestock guardian dog, Annie, and the beautiful setup that she has at her farm. So, Kate, thank you so much for coming on today. We appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Anytime. All right. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.